0: Hello, my name is Yuli Baraktari, and I'm the president and CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. On May 9th, we co-hosted the Ash Carter Exchange on Innovation and Technology. We are excited to share with you this collection, the full audio of keynote addresses and panels from the entire day of the event. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Megan Woff. I am from the Special Competitive Studies Project. For our next panel on the future of defense innovation, I am honored to welcome to the stage, General CQ Brown, Jr., the United States Air Force Chief of Staff, and one of our nation's most accomplished military leaders. The Honorable Michelle Fornoy, the co-founder of West Exec Advisors, former United States Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and a member of the SCSP Board of Advisors. Dr. Eric Schmidt, Chair of the Special Competitive Studies Project and former CEO of Google and Alphabet and HR McMaster, the 25th National Security Advisor to the President of the United States and retired United States Army Lieutenant General who will be joining us virtually. They will be joined for a conversation by Il Thayraktari, CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. Over to you, Illy.
0: Thank you, Miguel. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, General McMaster, good to see you online. It's so good to have you. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome all of you on our second panel, The Future of Defense Innovation. And I cannot think of uh, four uh, leaders uh, that inspire and motivate all of us, and they come from private sector, uh civilian leaders and military leaders and so i'm really honored to uh, moderate this panel today and welcome general cq brown jr to the stage michelle Flournoy, eric schmidt and uh general mcmaster uh, calling in from california uh the purpose of this panel really is twofold we're going to look at how is the technology changing the character of warfare and i think there's no better uh case to look at that what's going on right now in ukraine eric has been there and so we're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine and the lessons learned we can take from that conflict today with General McMaster, Michelle, and uh, General Brown. Uh, the second purpose is really is uh, with this change happening right now, what are the new demands placed on our Department of Defense? Uh, how is private sector changing? So we're going to discuss a little bit about uh, where the technology is going and how we can adapt faster in the space. Uh, before we kickstart the panel, I really want to note. That we just released our new report, an updated version of the OffsetX, called "The Closing the Deterrence Gap and Building the Future of the Joint Force." Uh, so I want to thank Justin, uh, Luke, Ilver, and JJ for working really hard on this with Greg Grant. Also, before I forget that, uh, and really, the, the report is looking at what are some of the lessons learned we are seeing in Ukraine. Uh, what is the Chinese uh, case for victory? And then, uh, you know, we provide detailed prescription, what we need to do as a country, as the Department of Defense, to make sure that we have a solid deterrence between now and 2030, as we go through these critical years uh, that President Biden called them the decisive decade. So without further ado, I want to turn over to our panelists, because I'm sure you want to hear from them. Uh, so I'm going to ask general questions to all of you. Uh, first, with what are we seeing? Uh, you know, we're going to start with the Russian war uh, of aggression against Ukraine. So I'm going to ask you to share what do you think the future of warfare is telling you from what's going on on the ground right now? What are some of the lessons that China is taking from the conflict there? And what are some of the lessons we should be taking from the conflict in Ukraine going forward? General Brown, if you don't mind uh, starting us off, then I'm going to go next to Michelle, General McMaster, and then uh,
2: finish with Eric. Sir? Well, first of all, it's a real it's an honor and pleasure to be here, and Stephanie, um, having uh Spent a little time with Dash. It's uh, uh, this is a great way to recognize his influence um, on many things that we do. I, I think th- there's a few things that I've taken away uh, based on th- this current conflict. Is that first of all, the uh, most conflicts are not short, and you can very quickly underestimate how long it's going to take to achieve your objectives. The importance of logistics um, in uh, an environment like this, and then also understanding the, uh, the value of an NCO Corps, uh, but also understanding the will to fight from your adversary. Um, and I think uh, in some cases that may, well, for Mr. Putin, definitely underestimate it. Maybe we may have underestimated some of that aspect as well. Uh, as an airman, uh, I also think about air superiority. And you got to think about air superiority in a different way. Neither side really has it. Um, a traditional air force, but uh, as I've talked to Eric a number of times, just the drone activity that's ongoing that's another dynamic of air superiority that you have to think about, based on on uh, you know how capability uh, military capability may uh, may be delivered. Um, I think our adversary, you know, our patient challenge at PRC, is learning uh, that as well. And ideally, that's a lesson you want to take away. Any conflict that you might start is not going to finish uh, in a in a very rapid manner. It can get very complicated very soon. Uh, I think the other aspect that they have uh, learned is the uh, strength of uh, partnerships and alliances. And we've been able to see that, uh, how NATO has you know, grown by one country, hopefully soon to be another. Uh, but just what we've been able to do with our international parts, not just within NATO, but in my engagement with my counterparts from all around the world, um, the, the value of those alliances and partnerships and how together you can move forward, not just from an military standpoint, but from other uh, instruments of power within the government. Thanks,
3: um, well, first of all, I just want to add my words of thanks to SP and also to Stephanie Carter here. And, you know, it's such a, a honor to be at an event like this honoring Ash's contributions. We really would not be having this conversation, um, were it not for him. So, um, I'm very pleased to be here. Um, you know, when I think I think about what lessons China should be learning and what we should be learning, I, I hope that President Xi looks at this and says, thinks, you know, maybe I should be a little careful about what I wish for here. Um, you know, the assumption that you can rapidly uh, and fundamentally uh, change the status quo and create a new reality, change a regime, take over a country quickly and painlessly, I think it's uh, pretty clear that that's uh, it's a lot more complicated than you might think. Um, second thing, I'd be worried about: Are my milit- in an autocratic system, an authoritarian system? Are my can I trust what my leaders, what my my subordinates are actually telling me? It's not exactly a leadership climate where it's it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, where you take risk to speak truth to power. So the plans that are presented to you may not actually survive contact with reality. I would be very worried about the international response, how the, the West has come together, U.S. and allies, to actually support um, Ukraine. Um, and you, I think we could expect um, a, a different constellation of partners, but uh, a very strong international response if there was unprovoked aggression against Taiwan. Um, the challenges associated with logistics, combined arms operations, if it's as difficult as it's been for Russia across a fairly limited land border, think about how hard it's going to be to do that across um, uh, 200 kilometers of, of water and ocean. Um, I'd be worried about the fact that what if the Taiwanese people resist? They're going to be fighting for their homeland. They're going to be fighting for their way of life, their democracy. I don't think the PLA's thought a lot about facing an insurgency or strong resistance. In Taiwan, so I'm hoping that that Ukraine Ukraine should be a cautionary tale uh, for President Xi. But for us, in terms of what we learn, I think the primary lesson is we have got to focus on strengthening deterrence. We have to make sure that Xi lacks confidence in his ability to achieve his goals quickly and with ease. Um, we have to be able to deny that ability. Um, we have to convince him and show him that the costs. Would be very detrimental and not worth u- the use of force to solve the Taiwan problem. Um, I think so. I think the next five years are critical in really strengthening deterrence, um, and 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 that's uh, where we should be focusing uh, a good good portion
4: of our attention.
0: Thank you, General McMaster.
1: Hey,
4: oh, hey, thank, thanks. to you, as the for the great work you're doing and the opportunity on this panel with four people I admire in honor of someone I know we all admire t- tremendously. You know, I would just say that hey, there are some continuities we have seen in this war as well. So I think wh- whereas we focus oftentimes on changes you know, that we're seeing, I think we can keep an eye on the on the, on, on the continuities. What we're seeing in Ukraine is a, is, a, is an example of old and new being combined. And what is old and you know, what are the continuities I think influence it? The consolidation of military gains to get to a political outcome, that's always been, and will remain essential uh, to, to winning, achieving a favorable outcome in war. I think after the frustration of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we just thought, we're just not going to do that anymore. And I think we just want to make war like a big targeting exercise. Well, I, I think we're seeing it in the Ukraine, a corrective to that kind of thinking. Also, to Michelle's point, you know, to, to actually deter, you have to be able to, to demonstrate your ability to fight and win to deny a potential enemy uh, their objectives, and they have to know it. And I, I think we have to recognize that, hey, deterrence isn't foolproof. You know? <laughs> and I think people are fighting for the same reasons today that Thucydides identified 25 years ago, fear, honor, and, and interest. And so so if deterrence isn't foolproof, I think you know, we're gonna need a lot more investment in defense uh, across our alliances and in the U.S. to demonstrate our ability to fight effectively at, at, at sufficient scale and for ample duration uh, to win. And then, of course, what we're seeing is, hey, war is uncertain. I think there's this belief now, uh, there's often a belief, that new technologies will lift will, uh, the war. Remember that from the Revolutionary little Affairs days? I think even with the tremendous advances in AI-related technologies, actually we're going to be more and more in the realm of uncertainty in the future course of events, Course, is going to always be uncertain because of the continuous interaction with enemies, and, and as General Brown said, you know, war is ultimately a contest of will. So remember those 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 uh, continuities. I think is important. Continuities at the tactical operational level. Hey, how about logistics, right? You know, and and, uh, and I think the Russians learned that uh, the hard way. So as we innovate, we need to innovate in, and really with an emphasis on the, the demand reduction, the means of, of blind, uh organizations and. Sustaining freedom of movement and action at the end of extended and contested lines of communication uh, in often austere environments. Hey, how about combined arms? The you old know, combined arms. You know that that, that there's not one arm that's decisive. You know, and you have to integrate infantry with mobile, protected firepower, protected mobility, and fires, and 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 uh, and uh, and, uh, and air power, and, and and electromagnetic warfare capabilities, and truly. really. Rock, paper, scissors, you know, in, in, in combat. And, uh, and, and the Russians are only using one of those at a time. And it's one of the reasons why they, they've been ineffective, uh, in combat. And that leads to the final, point. I think, would hear here is, hey, close combat overmatch matters. I think we always want to fight war from distance, make it tidier, neater, more of just like a targeting exercise. But what you're seeing is what are they fighting for? Control of territory, populations, resources. Their own security, so I think these continuities are important. And of course, there are some tremendous changes, many of which I think Eric will probably highlight here, based on the the great work that he's done and the visit, Eric, you had to to Ukraine. I mean, incredible speed of innovation and 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 the and the and the private sector involved in ways that are unprecedented. Obviously, with the integration of all sorts of drones, for example, I think we're seeing the emergence of a kind of a scary drone missile strike complex we have to defend against. Uh, more, more effectively. Uh, but, but also, you know, look at Starlink and, and the use of, of commercial communications in, in ways, uh, that, have, that has proven immensely important to the Ukrainians. So I'll just stop there. The overall point is, hey, there is a lot of change that we're seeing, uh, and harbingers of maybe the, how warfare will evolve, but there are a heck of a lot of continuities as well.
0: General McMaster, before I turn to Eric, uh, the one thing I would ask you to comment is, Chinese lessons from Ukraine because I've heard you speak about this many, many times and and obviously I'm biased when it comes to your comments. So can you elaborate on some of the lessons that maybe China is taking from Ukraine before I turn it over to Eric?
4: Yeah, hey, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I want to hear what everybody else thinks about this because I don't think any of us know yet. We do know that the Chinese are studying this extremely closely, right? The, the, the experience of the Ukrainians and the Russians in, in this war. I hope what they conclude is Hey, you know, I mean, looking good on parade, uh, in Tiananmen Square is pretty easy compared to actual war. And, and I hope that, that, uh, the valor of the Ukrainians, their courage, uh, as well as the, the uh, the difficulty that the, the Russians have encountered will give them pause in connection with, uh, trying to subsume Taiwan by, by force. Uh, but they also might conclude that they've got a fleeting window of opportunity to do so, uh, as they see the United States uh, and and our allies and partners uh, waking up to this, you know, Japan doubling its defense budget, Taiwan integrating hopefully soon the 19 billion dollars of backlogged uh, uh, military capabilities that have been purchased and are on the way to Taiwan. The improvements in defense that Australia's been making. So so I, I I just don't know really, and I think we have to ask that question about the Taiwanese as well. I hope that this has been an example to bolster the. Taiwanese will, as, as Michelle highlighted the importance of that, and, and CQ did as well. So, um, <laughs> I guess that's a long way of saying, I don't know, really. I, we have to pay attention to that question.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, Eric, you've been in Ukraine. Uh, what can you share with us? Some of the lessons learned from there, and what can China and us learn from the conflict there?
5: Uh, thank you, Ali. Thank, thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, I'm here to start with because eight years ago, I will never forget this image. I'm in a hallway in Davos and Ash Carter runs down with this enormous energy. He has, he said, I have an offer for you. Um, and I figured I'd do this for like a year or two, eight years later, he changed my life. That's why I'm here. So thank you, Stephanie. I'm Glad everybody's here. Um, I got interested in Ukraine, partly because of what was going on, but also because I wanted to see what a modern war fought on, fought with technical people um, would look like. And so here's the basic principles. The first is that, as General McMaster mentioned, communications is essential, and not just communications among the military, but to all the civilians. And what they did is they built an app, uh, technically known as diIA. Which allowed you citizens to report the locations of tanks. They were AI, AI classified and then targeted. That's how the initial invasion was stopped. Today in Ukraine, the majority of the commercial innovation is in drones. And there are roughly two, two categories of drones. They call them category one and two. The first I'm going to describe as a simple, relatively straightforward suicide drone that goes a certain distance and hits its target and you're done. And the second one goes out and back and is obviously much more capable much smarter much more expensive there's a huge debate as to whether this which which approach works and the answer is we're going to find out um what's interesting to me is that uh, and one of the things that i learned in working with the military is i have enormous respect for the men and women who serve our nation because of their courage and i have none so from my perspective if i were in in uniform I would want 50 drones ahead of me and 50 drones behind me, protecting me, okay, right, doing my mission under the command of our great leaders. And this is a fundamental change in how we're going to conduct war. So the combination of autonomy, which is systems that make their own decisions, which is coming, and the ability to do drone and essentially independent action will change war as we know it in our national defense. Thank you. Eric. Uh, so we started with just looking at the current
0: security environment uh, in Ukraine and some of the lessons learned going forward. Next, I would like to turn into: um, Is the department ready for the changes that are happening? Uh, what are you seeing uh, in sort of like in challenges and opportunities in that space? And what else can we do uh, to really move forward in adopting these capabilities, transforming the department uh, as we, as uh, Dr. Carter has worked so hard uh, for for years. So uh, Michelle, let me start with you since you know the department extremely well. Um, there are a lot of initiatives happening right now. Um, the secretary has announced uh, several uh, offices. DIU has been elevated to report to the secretary. So, how do you assess the current state of department's uh, efforts to reach out uh, and get up to speed with what's happening and then really transform towards the future?
3: Right. So you know, let's start with the positive. I think, you know, the department has made a lot of progress since, you know, the the time when, when Ash Carter first sort of recognized that the a lot of the cutting edge of innovation had moved out of defense R&D and into the commercial world. And so, as, you know, Eric coined the phrase, you know, it's not an innovation problem now, it's an innovation adoption problem. Um, and our procurement system is not set up to really reach into the commercial sector and rapidly scale innovation uh, with speed. Um, So, you know, we have created a number of offices, um, you know, DIU, the various services, AFWorks, um, AFRL, you know, there are various um, offices that are out there scanning the environment, scouting for technology solutions. Um, bringing them in, prototyping them, demonstrating them, experimenting with them, and hats off to Congress, giving the department lots of authorities to actually prototype and and do that. Where we're still kind of stuck is moving from that successful prototype or experiment to rapid production and integration at scale. And I think there are several problems there. First is the human problem that you know, people don't like to change how they do business. And unless you take a portion of the acquisition cadre and you train them differently on here's how you work with iterating commercial technology and bringing it into the force. And, and then you incentivize and reward them with promotions and a career path and so forth. You're not going to have, you're just going to have rely, you, you'll end up having some exceptional individuals who lean forward and take risk despite the system, as opposed to the system supporting a new set of behaviors that will help people, help more innovation get across the valley of death. Um, the other thing I think that we do need from Congress is some relief on how they um, allocate resources. There are hundreds and hundreds of lines of you know, different programs in the budget. And so money's managed by program. I think we need to move more towards what you find in the private sector, which is mission-oriented portfolios. So you have a a funding funding that is going towards a certain mission set that includes a number of programs and in it, but allows the department to be, you know, leaders to be smart CEOs and and make trade-offs within that portfolio, depending on what's working, what's not working, and so forth. Because we have Really hamstrung ourselves in the ability to learn from and and to also to to allow for disruptive technology of the kind that Eric's describing to come in and change the program, change the budget, accelerate our our adoption.
5: Thank you, John.
2: Well, I I, uh, I you know Michelle kind of laid out there are pockets um, with the whether it's DIU or uh, uh, AFWorks for the Air Force and the other services. Um, but there's a lot of innovation on one side, but there's not uh, the process to be able to get things into production to get the capability into the hands of our our service members. You know, I was in a meeting here recently uh, with a, one of our offices in the Pentagon and it said, uh, we probably don't need to spend as much time on in the innovation side because there's a lot of good innovations going on. We just need to provide them the operational problem we're trying to solve. We need to build more infrastructure on the other side of the valley and it's almost like fiddle the drinks, build it and they will come. It's how you, you know, bring in and nurture one of these, uh, you know, the good ideas and then build the infrastructure for them to, you know, go into production and, and to scale. Um, but I do see, you know, you know, part of this is, uh, you know, there are restrictions and I think there's a, you know, there's things in law. Uh, there's things in policy and there's things in practice. And I think we can probably change the practice and the policy while we work on the law to move much faster. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier today is uh, we have the talent to do this and we actually have the authorities do many of the things, but we have a kind of a practice. If you go outside the lines, you kind of get your hands slapped and you get back in line. Uh, we need more disruptive uh, thought processes within, within the Department of Defense, honestly, to connect with the disruptive thought technology uh, that's going outside of the Department of Defense and how do you align the two of those together to, to move forward. So we're making progress, but I, I just... Personally, don't think we're moving fast enough in certain areas, and there's many that want to work with the Department of Defense. We just don't have to make it so hard. Thanks, General McMaster. Hey, well, I, I, Joe Brown,
4: I, I apologize for this before. I think one of the things we we, uh, we needed to just even elevate our perspective a little bit and and just think about really the four key tasks that we need to to perform. Uh, for us to be able to innovate and stay ahead and make sure that our, our joint force has the competitive advantages we want it to have. And that's to think, to learn, to analyze and implement. And I think thinking clearly about future war and laying a strong conceptual foundation for future war, maybe learning, you know, I think from, you know, from our over enthusiasm for the revolution of military affairs in the nineties and paying attention to continuities as well as change. But in terms of learning, you know, I think we need a framework for learning. Across the joint force. And this is where I'd like to see the reinvigoration of what, of the joint, uh, the joint war fighting challenges. And these are just kind of first order challenges that never really go away, but you have to, to learn about them and, and, and develop interim solutions in, in a sustained manner over time and to ensure that you're learning, you know, in a, in a focused, sustained, uh, and cumulative manner rather than, you know, episodically and repetitively and so forth. And so what's an example of a first order question would be, how to develop and sustain a high degree of situational understanding in complex environments and against adaptive enemies. Never going to go away, but what you require is an integrated solution to that that integrates maybe a whole range of technologies and new doctrine and then integrating these new technologies into organizations and, and with people. So so I just think the framework for learning, right? How, I mentioned what already, which is you know, how to sustain freedom of movement and action in end of extended and contested lines of communication uh in, in austere environments. Or what Eric Eric alluded to is how to protect, how to protect your force uh a- against this emerging uh drone missile strike complex in a more and more transparent environment with where where uh your adversaries are gonna have access to all sorts of commercial surveillance capabilities, lower earth, earth orbit uh imagery and so forth. And then analyze, analyze what we're learning to architect kind of Really, solutions, uh, inner solutions to these problems, uh, and and to ensure that they're they're really integrated uh, solutions that deliver on these capabilities and and to continuously analyze these. I mean, we ought to touch these at least once a year. How well are we doing on this challenge? And then finally, what you've all been talking about is implementation, reducing the barriers to rapid implementation and scaling up. So I think as we assess our ability to integrate, maybe just think about these four tasks of Thinking, learning, analyzing, and implementing.
0: Thank you, sir. Uh, Eric, you have observed the work of the department for eight years now. You've visited many bases. Um, what are some of the things that have happened during this time frame that you thought gives you hope? And what are the things you think we should accelerate
5: and change? So, so thank you. One of the things that we did is we visited more than 100 bases around the world. And, you know, th- the theory is to sort of understand what people are actually doing. and there's just a lack of software. There's a lack of software at every level. Um, the HR system, the travel system, the email system. Does this sound familiar to the our military folks here in the room? It, you know, it just fix that to start with. Um, the good news about software is that there are now hundreds of companies that have been formed that want to serve. They want to help. They want to make money and they don't they can't find someone to talk to so we the senior leadership in the military in the pentagon get it over and over again they say they know what they want they just don't know how to get it through the system you've got the supply over here right and you just have to make some changes part of the root of this was that software was treated as sort of a uh, think of it as a repair service it wasn't treated as its own assembly line I remember speaking to one particularly senior general who was in charge of a very large part of the military and I said you know here you are I said this in a more polite way you're a big cheese you have all these marines around you right why can't you get a hundred people doing software to work for you to fix all the little problems just the little ones and he said to me straight face I did and then they were taken away from me and I said how were they taken away from you? And they said, yes, because we couldn't give them the right allocation code. So think about that. We've got the smartest and most capable military leaders. And then in this particular administrative process, this gentleman could not get what he needed to do even the simplest things. So I'm a strong proponent of giving our military leaders and our national security leaders more flexibility with respect to how they allocate software resources. Software, remember, is not like procuring a weapon system. Software is never done, right? You're always fixing it. You're always improvement. If every one of our leaders, just to finish my pitch here, had the ability to have 50 or 100 software people under their command to do whatever it is came to their mind, we would be so much more efficient. And by the way, none of these barriers exist in Ukraine, and that's exactly how it works. Thanks, sir. I'm going to I'm going to start right there with you
0: uh, and I'm going to turn over the conversation to AI. I mean, the mission of the SESP is really looking at how do you remain competitive in the space as a nation? Um, Eric, uh, I know you you cover this issue uh, and you work really closely the issue of large language models. So I wanted us to hear from you. Where do you see this trajectory going? How do you assess what's happening right now? Um, and then I'll turn it over to the conversation with with Michelle and others in terms of what does it mean for, for DOD.
5: Yeah, I think my no, question back is how many hours do you have to get into this? <laughs> um, so uh, again, there's there's some good news here, and then there's some concerning news. So um, I've never seen a phenomena like we're seeing now, and I've done this for 50 years. I've never seen the rate of change, the rate of investment. It's extraordinary. It's occurring globally. <laughs> um, the Trump and Biden administrations did a good job in slowing down China. So at the moment, the leadership in this area is occurring in the United States. The Europeans are hopelessly behind because they start with regulation, which never works. Um, so effectively, it's ours to play with. You know, we have we as a nation have control over this technology right now. Um, <clears throat> the current the current framing is basically there are frontier models which are, you would know them as OpenAI, GPT 4 there's one series of ones coming out of Google, there's a private company called Anthropic, there's a couple of other candidates, and these things have enormous power. Um, they suck all the information in from these various systems, and they integrate it in ways that, were, that produce emergent behavior. The computer scientist cannot, speaking as a computer scientist, cannot explain to you why this occurs, when it occurs, and what it's doing, right? So it really is magic right now. There are people working very hard to answer all these questions, and we're talking about thousands and thousands of people. But this is an American leadership opportunity, and the benefits are enormous. Imagine an AI tutor. Imagine an AI doctor. These are helping teachers, helping doctors do better jobs. I can go on and on. Uh, People are using these techniques in chemistry and biology and science uh, to discover new things. Um, the technology that was invented predicts the next word, sentence, and paragraph. This was invented at Google in 2017 called the Transformers. This technology, the, the layer of individual, middle, and high also applies to many other aspects in biology and science and so forth. It's all now being applied. You're going to see an acceleration of drug discovery. We're going to address climate change and so forth. The negatives are also very significant. Uh, a lot has been discussed about biological threats, uh, Military has a whole project on this. Uh, I'm part of a congressional task force working on this. Um, there's all sorts of issues around cyber cyber attacks. Imagine I say to as an evil person to the system, attack a country, and tell me how you break in. Right? So you can imagine those kinds of scenarios. And then there's the all the issues around uh, loss of faith in democracy because of social media. Um, I'm actually more worried about something which nobody is talking about. Um, which I've expressed to these folks privately, which is that the diffusion of this knowledge from these very expensive and specialized models to open source is occurring much quicker than I thought. And open source has the property that it moves us along very quickly, but it gives all of our advantages away to our competitors. Why in the world would you invent something this powerful and then choose to leak it to the Chinese? Right, Not even I am that stupid. And yet, in fact, that's what we're busy doing. And this is a problem that as a nation, we have to address this year. Thank you. Michelle, uh, when we were at the AI Commission, one
0: of the questions we got time and again was AI for what? For DoD? Uh, And one of the things we recommended that we need as a nation to be AI ready for DoD by 2025. What we meant was that the underlying infrastructure that you need, the data, the algorithms, everything has to be ready by then. As you, as you heard Eric these things are moving much much faster so how do you think AI will help DoD and going forward
3: How how do I think
0: AI will help DoD
3: So um I definitely think that you know the enterprise applications that Eric was describing are absolutely critical for DoD just to be able to function as a more modern effective data driven organization um but it's also really important for for the warfighter and i do think that the fi- uh, while this is obviously a longer journey um given that uh president xi has asked his military for options vis-a-vis taiwan in 2027 even if we understand that may not be his preferred option we need to be very confident in deterrence by then and a lot of that will depend by, on how we take existing platforms and capabilities, marry them with new software solutions, including AI, to get different outcomes. So imagine uh, a network uh, knitting our network of net C4ISR networks together in a way that is truly agile and resilient, leveraging AI and other software to actually make it work more like an electric, electrical grid, where if you're at risk of a you're being, you know, you're having an outage or you're being attacked or it's contested or some node is going down. The system is smart and intelligently reroutes traffic um, and and so forth uh, and, and, and keeps functioning even in a contested environment. Um, figuring out how we use software to marry human beings and machines so that a human being can control those 50 drones b- before and behind um and that that gives us um tremendous advantage uh leveraging ai to sort through all of the intelligence and the, just the massive amounts of information that comes at a decision making maker to separate the wheat from the chaff get the right insight to the right person at the right moment so that we make better faster decisions than our adversaries so these are these are near term applications that could really um really make a difference Again, I think the department is trying. Um, you know, they're trying to be data ready. The creation of the CDAO was a very important innovation. They are trying to move to the cloud, but we <laughs> have seen how even that has been, you know, very very difficult because of contracts being contested and the like. Um, but these are things that we have to move through urgently to actually be ready to deter to be ready to fight, but also to be able to operate as a 21st century um, organization.
0: Thank you. General McMaster, you talked earlier about the risks from AI. Um, I wanted to expand on that and just ask you, do you see any opportunities on the battleground that will come from AI and and also at the strategic uh, level, what are some of the risks and other challenges we might face from AI being deployed now and uh, in the future?
4: Absolutely. And I would just agree with what, what I, what, uh, what's already been said already in terms of some risks that, uh, that Eric, uh, laid out and, and the opportunities Michelle laid out. But I think it's already transforming logistics. And, and, uh, and I think the Air Force has been a big lead under this under General Brown. Maybe you might want to comment on this. You know, a lot more about it than I do, but I, I think, uh, but I mean, making logistics a lot more effective, resilient, uh, efficient, uh, in ways that, uh, that we could never do before because we couldn't anticipate, uh, you know, Equipment failures, for example, and conduct maintenance in such an effective way, or uh, to use the, the electrical grid metaphor that that Michelle used. I mean, healing logistics networks as well, and to have a greater reliance uh, on on our ability to sustain operations across vast distances. Of course, we've all talked about uh, artificial intelligence technologies' impact on on intelligence, and and I think what's really important is the ability for to, for uh, artificial intelligence to help us understand better what patterns. Of Behavior are, but also to anticipate pattern breaks. And when you combine um, the, the range of technology, pretty, uh, large language models, just being able to access so much data and integrate, for example, you know imagery and signal intelligence and interrogation reports, and and then to be able to display nodes and networks and see flows through enemy networks of people, money, weapons, uh, and so forth. I mean, can, can I think help you conduct operations in a, in a much more uh, effective way? Uh, on, on the downside, I do worry about you know content-based verification going away, right? And and the degree to which this plays into deception in war, but also the way it could affect like our confidence in, in in who we are as a people and our democratic institutions and processes. I think we're going to see in future war an all-out assault uh, on our will. Our national will—it's already happening. You've seen you know, the Russians doing this deal, you know, going back to the '20s, and then and then you know Thomas Ridd's book. But then the continuous uh integration of technology—it's going to increase, you know, by orders of magnitude here in terms of the danger. So, so those are—I mean—thoughts that are not original at all. But this is the way that I'm thinking about the opportunities and the and the dangers. The last thing you will see is, hey, we have to make a fundamental choice, though. If we believe whether AI te- related technologies are going to shift more, more toward the realm of certainty or toward the realm of uncertainty, and because I think there are a series of other assumptions that flow from that fundamental assumption, and if we pick the wrong one, I'm on the uncertainty side. <laughs> if you pick the certainty side, you know what you begin to stress is centralization over decentralization, uh, planning for, uh, over execution, or synchronization over initiative. So I think the force we design ought to be a force that takes advantage of AI-related technologies, but recognizes that warfare will remain in the realm of uncertainty.
0: John Brown, you have moved the Air Force towards adoption of these critical technologies. What are some of the lessons you've seen from you know, adopting AI uh, that other services might uh, learn from the Air Force? Uh, I also know that you care about the talent a lot and recruiting talented individuals that come with tech background. So I know this is a two part questions, but uh, given, I think your passion for bringing the best and the brightest to help the Air Force with this task, I think uh, I wanted to ask you that question as well.
2: Well, I, I appreciate the compliment that we're moving uh, ahead of the other services, but uh, I'm not so sure. Um, and the reason I say that is, um, I don't know that we fully understand AI and machine learning. Uh, I think we've made some progress in certain areas. Uh, as an Air Force, just based on the, you know uh, being a more, t- in some cases, a more technological service than others, and I'd also say you know our relationship with the Space Force as well. Um, but I think too often, and for those of us that work in the Pentagon, you'll you'll see AI and ML on a bunch of PowerPoint slides. <laughs> it's true, as if it's the panacea that's going to solve all our problems, and uh, we don't fully understand it. And uh, you know, I've gotten smarter on this particular topic, and there's a lot of things, you know, the more I learn, the more I figure out I do not know uh, about how AI and ML can help us do things. I actually, was, as I was listening to the other panelists, I had a thought experiment. If we were to ask these same questions to AI model, how would they respond? <laughs> but the key part here is that we've got to continue to learn uh, where the opportunities might lie. One of my concerns is, uh, as it was highlighted previously is how it may be used by our adversaries in ways that we may not appreciate, uh, as we move forward. And so that's, that's, that's important. The things I'm thinking of from a talent management standpoint is looking at those that would have the background that will help us in this area. And data I know is very important associated with this. And so the aspect of those that have data science backgrounds and uh we have a major that i would spend time talking to as a phd in data science um, that wasn't even a major when i was in college and so the aspect of you know how do you bring in though, that talent and at the same time they may follow a non-traditional career path that is not the standard norm and, you know how do you incentivize them keep them uh you know, in, you know engaged and also allowing them to be promoted so they'll stay with us uh whether in are uniform or they're civilian. But to build those those relationships um, and give them there's meaningful work out there. It's, you know how do we make sure that we're we're looking after them, taking care of them, and uh, continue to incentivize those that have that uh, th- that skill set and have that desire to work in the, the national security realm in this uh, in this area. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question, then I'll turn it over to you for any
0: questions you might have, um, Secretary Carter. Really, when you think about his background, his legacy. Um, I think the one thing that I take away is that he was trying to have a whole of nation approach to technology competition, which I think you all have individually been part of this effort and you've been trying really hard. Um, as we face a competitor like China that has a civil mill fusion, what are some of the things that I think are still serving as a barrier in our public-private conversation that you would like to see us move forward much faster? And I'll start with you, General McMaster, because you served both in the military at the White House. You now are at Stanford, so you're much closer to the Silicon Valley. What are some of the things you see are still hindering this whole of nation approach to competition? And then I'll turn it over to Eric, who has been an observer of this for many, many years, and, uh, and Michelle and General Brown. Hey, Walter, well,
4: if you would ask me this 20, in 2018, when I first arrived in Silicon Valley, I would have said, man, we're, it's pretty bleak. We, we don't we don't have the private sector involved in competitions, but I think based on the vision of of Eric, who I think has led led. It. I mean, Eric made it cool again uh, to get involved in national defense. <laughs> if you're if you're if you're the center of of, of, of innovation here in Silicon Valley, so I think the will is there, you know. And and I think we still we don't communicate as clearly as we could. What the needs are uh, for for national security and national defense and the joint force, and again, I mean not to be a broken record on this, but I think this you know something like joint warfighting challenges, simple questions, how to, and pose the problem. I think uh, would, would would be helpful in communicating that, and then of course I think the, the most immediate obstacle we face now is we have to see these these companies uh, that that have developed. Uh, solutions for some of our problems see a payoff I mean actually see programs of record uh and and uh and, and really uh, adopting some of these capabilities at, at, at scale so I would just say two things you know communicating more clearly but I do believe there is a tremendous desire to help now and I think I think uh, the people I'd put at the top of my list to thank are, is, is eric Schmidt uh but then quickly followed by Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin
0: Eric, uh, you're on the top three.
2: Uh,
0: <laughs> and, and General McMaster used you as a, as a cool factor, but also as the top three, notorious.
5: Uh, <laughs> so over to you. I asked, uh, asked GPT-4, how will the Chinese use AI against us? Uh, There are some potential ways AI could be used against cyber warfare, AI can be used to conduct cyber attacks, blah, 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 economic espionage, AI could help in the theft of intellectual property, surveillance, AI can be used to analyze large amounts of data, autonomous weapons, AI can be used to develop autonomous weapon systems, information warfare, infrastructure disruption, economic disruption. Sure looks like GPT-4 has some pretty good answers for us, right, (laughs) to help us in our, so let's I think you call it human machine teaming. Yes. Let's do human machine teaming to discover how to do human machine teaming. <laughs> um, I think we've got a situation in, in Silicon Valley now where people want, they don't know who to call. And over and over again, I'm dealing with a small group. These are very smart people. Um, they're typically commercial. They want to make money and they want to serve, right? There's no phone number to call right? Plus, they don't use phones anywhere. They're too young. Um, they don't know who to who, like, do they talk to a general? Okay, well, there's lots of them. Or maybe an admiral, what do they do? I mean, we're, this is what we're dealing with. There's no, there's no binding function. And one way to solve that problem would be to build a, a, a sort of an induction group, you know, the way same way you bring in new recruits, bring in new technologies. DIU is a path for that right? But it needs to be bigger or stronger, or maybe there's multiple ways. But I I think that the the reason to be optimistic is we have now agreement in Silicon Valley on the basics here, which is this stuff is important. And I think anyone who was confused saw what happened in Ukraine is no longer confused. And so I think you're going to see American at its best, right? Innovation in universities, the business sector, and then working with the government. I, I know it sounds Pollyanna's, but I really do believe that with a relatively small number of changes inside the processes that identify software as, as something real and figure out how small companies that have these innovative approaches can get into a pipeline, right, which is not just through the primes who are too slow. And remember, the primes are organized around the POM process and this very painful procurement process, and it's it's very difficult to change there's plenty of other ways to get this knowledge into the department. Michelle?
3: Yeah, no, I agree we are way beyond the immediate post-Snowden days, where there was tremendous suspicion in the Valley of working with DOD, and that's in part thanks to, thanks to Eric and others. Um, and there, so there's no shortage of talent and, and know-how, you know, people who want to help. Um, and um i agree i think part of it is they they don't know how to plug in the department hasn't made it easy it's made it it's tried to make it easier for them with things like diu um uh, and i'm just going to put in a plug for diu's new leader doug beck who's yes. gonna
5: right in the um, front. re-energize
3: Hi, the uh, organization and help it to realize its full potential which we're very excited about but um but so people like me, people, you know, WestExec, other firms end up being that informal coach on let's, hey, okay, let's understand what you got. Let's understand the use cases. How do we map your potential customers? How do we help you approach them? What is, you know, how do you approach AFWERX? How do you approach DIU? How do you approach um, whoever? And, but, but still, even when they get to that point of prototyping demonstration, having initial success the handoff from an afflux into the Air Force POM or into um, some other longer-term funding stream is still very difficult. So again, I think part of, the pro- part of the solution, and we are seeing this, there are also funders now in Silicon Valley who I would call more patient capital, people who have a mission orientation and are saying, I don't have to see the same ROI that I would expect in the commercial sector in three to five years. When I'm dealing with defense, I'm gonna take a more patient approach, but that's not enough. The department has got, when we're talking about acquisition of commercial technology, we cannot use the sequential requirements. We're gonna spend years defining requirements. Then we're gonna go through all these sequential acquisition milestones. We have to have a different approach to commercial acquisition and integration People who are trained and expert in that, and people who are incented and promoted and rewarded for that, and that to me is the the missing piece that we can really, um, if we get after it, can really accelerate the this adoption.
2: Joe, you know, yeah, I think there's there's two key factors I think about: it's uh, leadership and personal relationships. Uh, on the leadership side, I was told when I came in this job. Uh, whatever I'm interested in, people are going to be fascinated by. <laughs> Meaning that if I start to, to look at things, then you will have you know parts of the staff will then start to figure out how to uh, move that forward. And so it, it does require my personal engagement to make sure the momentum continues because I can say things and then hoping it's going to work and then figure out ways that we're not moving forward. What I also think is leadership because if you're advocating for these type of things and continue to talk about them. Um, you're able in a position to break down some of the barriers that we've highlighted here today because there are many barriers. And there's many pockets of resistance. And, you know, one of my goals is to really figure out what those pockets of resistance are, you know, the name, the office, phone number, and then bring them in the room, explain to them how they're impeding progress and show them the bigger picture. And I, I owe that to the airmen I'm privileged to lead to, to make that happen. There's also the, the personal relationships and then, you know, the relationships I built with uh, those in the Silicon Valley that see my passion for this, that want to work with the Air Force and want to work with the Department of, of Defense, but also with AFWORKS and having AFWORKS build those relationships and uh, doing a bit of better job of one, changing our culture, but two, have to turn those relationships into something that's going to provide capability uh, as we move forward. One of the areas that we're going to, we're just on the cuffs of getting is, um, working on bringing in industry into uh, into the Air Force. We have a program of education with in the industry. We'll send our, our officers and NCOs to go spend a year with industry. And so I've been thinking, well, how do we bring industry into the Department of the Air Force so they see how we work? And so we're working with Google and we're real close to, you know, the lawyers have to do the last few checks. Uh, but the goal is to bring someone in for three to six months so they can see how we operate. I want to make sure we put them in a place that doesn't crush their soul. <laughs> <laughs> where they can see the real value in the opportunities and then take that back. But also build a relationship with some of the, you know, those of us in uniform and our civilians that can be long lasting because we can we can get things done. You know, as you know, a lot of things get done based on relationships. We can figure out how to get around the, the process and the policies. Uh, and then instead of having an exception to policy, sometimes I think just change the policy. So the exception becomes a new rule. And that's the way we got to operate here in the future. Uh, to make sure we're going to move as fast as we need to.
0: Thanks, sir. We have a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to turn it over to you for any questions. Uh, I know there we have uh, mics being passed around, so I see a hand here in the middle. Until Hina uh, gets the mic, please introduce yourself, your affiliation, and. Uh I have a question.
4: I guess it's currently in the air, we're talking about of open source LLMs. I mean, we've seen from the leaked Google memo that a lot of people believe, and uh, I certainly believe that a lot of good work has been done with open source. So either through quantization to more consumer-grade hardware, um, through better ability to fine-tune on, say, like specific data sets,
5: through tools like Langchain, which let us integrate with others, with databases and other tools. A lot of development is coming out of open source. Is there a way that we can concretely use open source, get the benefits of open
4: source, but keep those models, the capabilities with responsible people doing responsible things and keep them away from irresponsible people doing the opposite?
5: this is an incredibly astute question to which i don't know the answer
3: mm-hmm.
5: and i'm really struggling with it so the context of of this excellent question is that there was a leaked memo out of google which talked about moats and, and so forth but it was really a discussion of the rapidity of technology uh, diffusion and what is happening is that the frontier models are very very quickly Being engineered into smaller, more capable, quicker solutions, very fast, faster than anything I've ever seen. And if those models are open source, then the regulatory structure that we put on the top models doesn't necessarily travel with it. There are many ideas on how to solve this problem. What I consider to be an excellent idea is that you build the constitution into the model when you make it but there's evidence that that can be stripped out. So again, we don't really know. Um, I think the industry is going to propose roughly the following rule. If you're doing something of this nature, you have to, if you're doing something which involves either recursive self-improvement, which is obviously dangerous, or some kind of fine tuning in these particular areas, you have to notify the government. And there's a number of regulatory examples in other industries that may approach that, but at this point I'm speculating. This has happened so fast. It's happened in the last month. People haven't figured it out yeah. yet.
0: Thank you. Uh, next question. There is a hand way back. Heina in the back. Bye.
2: Hi, my name is Jordan Son. I am an Army veteran, uh, State Department veteran, and also currently vice president of product at a robotics company. Uh, My question is to the general panel here, uh, with 40% of PhDs are born uh, overseas, you know, and 50% of those PhDs who study uh, AI-related research uh, cite immigration barriers, one of the reasons why they leave this country. You know, and given the ongoing military recruiting shortage, you know, how might the military play a role in retaining this talent in the US? Would it be possible to bring talent initiatives like the MAPME programs back so that we can retain this technology talent. General, can I, can
4: I give a one word answer to that? Yes, sir. How about amen? Amen.
2: <laughs> General? General. No, I, I just, uh, you know, there. I think there's plenty of opportunity that we have to continue to take a look at how we show the oppor- you know, show where we have a need. And it's whether those are in uniform or those outside of uh, uniform that are getting advanced degrees and, and how we marry those up. You know, one of the areas that uh, I've been focused on as, as our as chief here is uh, now that we've got rid of uh, below the zone promotions, we have more time to develop our, our officer corps and same on the enlisted side. And because of that, we have more opportunities for our uh, officers and NCOs who get uh, advanced degrees and particularly PhDs for the officers. The key point now is how do we make sure we're tracking that talent and putting them in the right place so they stay with us and, and contrib- continue to contribute? Um, and the thing I'm also focused on is what type of PhDs are they getting? Not just whatever they want to get, what's going to value not only them and their personal development, but also what's going to help uh, the United States Air Force. So there's a bit of balance there. And then really how we tap into academia at large uh, to, work, to be collaborative in our approaches uh, I think is also important.
3: Can I just jump yes, in sure. on yeah. the larger, I mean, if you're taking more of a whole nation perspective on this, I mean, if if what we, the first thing we have to do is invest in the drivers of our own competitiveness. One of the things that is got to be on the table is rethinking our immigration policy. And I know people all get a big eye roll, like, oh, go dream about that. I mean, how is that going to work in our polarized society? But I do think there one of the few areas of consensus in today's Congress um, across the parties is the challenge posed by China. And I think if we think through what kind of immigration policy do we need, what changes do we need to attract the best and brightest from around the world, as we have done in the past, and get them to build their lives here, their businesses here, bring their talents here and stay I think that's, that's a very important part of the discussion. And, if, and again, if you look at the founders in so a place like Silicon Valley, you know, half of them are either immigrants or first generation Americans. So we have to think about the whole of nation approach to how do we bring that human capital here? And then we have to think about the additional step of how do we bring it into the military and into tours of government service, which again is something that Eric's done a lot of thinking about as well.
5: The, um we face a significant competition issue in quantum with China. Um, the head of their quantum program was educated in America. We did not give the gentleman a visa. He went back to China, and now he is a competitive threat. This is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. I'm sorry to be blunt. Um, there is a mechanism around national security visas. It should be established that people of the specialized skills that the generals need should get those visas. How much clearer can I be? Right. We're now facing in a decade store now decrypt later. All of our secrets will be known by the Chinese because of this person. I mean, it's crazy. Um,
0: I want to end the the panel really uh, on something. Uh, yeah, other I just me. To add
4: another example yes, of this immigration of here. How about the Bosch
0: Ricciardi brothers? How about those guys? As a good example. <laughs> <Immigrant>. <laughs> Thanks, Basic. <Thanks>, <laughs> no, but I, I also wanted to end it on that note. There's no country in the world in which a person like me or a bear, or I think we have so many people on our team that are foreign born, get to work with Miss Flora in DOD, get to work for General McMaster at the White House, and then work with Eric at the AI Commission, now with SSB. So, I mean... Uh, I you think, are
5: the American dream. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh,
0: but really, I mean, uh, we have to fix the immigration problem. I think because we have recruiting issues, which I think we have to address. And I think immigration could be part of that solution. But also, as, as you mentioned, Michelle, some of our top leaders in the tech companies are foreign board. So
5: fixing this issue should be, I think, a broader part of the policy conversation we need to have. Why don't we just take all the really smart people out of China and move them to the U.S. and put them in charge of fighting China? mean, come on it's just not that <laughs> difficult <laughs> I think you just made news Eric so we'll leave it there
0: uh, uh, and thank you all you guys are tremendous leaders uh General Brown thank you so much for your time Michelle as always it's always good to see you Eric it's always a pleasure General McMaster thank you so much for doing this remotely and I look forward to seeing you soon in person let's uh, have a round of applause for all of you, thank you.